Scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I was uh, studying the text this week and reflecting on the fact that the scribe was not far from the kingdom of God, but not in, I couldn't help but think of Scott Norwood. Wow, there are some Bills fans here. I shouldn't be surprised. Scott Norwood. If you're not a Bills fan, this is all going to make sense and hurt in just a minute. In 1977, Scott Norwood was a soccer player at Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And after spring practice one day, the football coach walked up to him and said, I hear you can kick a ball pretty good. Would you like to try out for the football team next fall? And so Scott went home, talked to his parents, and decided to give it a shot. And he and his dad spent that whole summer on the football field at Thomas Jefferson High Practicing kickoffs, practicing field goals, over and over and over again, day after day after day. Well, Scott not only made the team, he also earned a football scholarship to James Madison University. And in between, you know, every summer in between the, his uh, summer throughout the college career, he was back on the field at Thomas Jefferson High School kicking field goals over and over with his dad. The dream, of course, was the NFL. It's not hard to imagine a young Scott Norwood picturing himself kicking game winners on Sundays and maybe even picturing himself kicking that game-winning Super Bowl, you know, kick. And, uh, well... <laughs> Scott wasn't drafted after college. He had to work harder than most to find a spot on the team. He was, he was cut by the Atlanta Falcons... He spent a year in the USFL with the Birmingham Stallions. And then in 1984, Scott was named the starting kicker for the Buffalo Bills. He did kick some game winners on Sundays, but in 1991, he had the opportunity to kick that game winner in a Super Bowl. The Bills, this is going to hurt, right? Just remembering this. The Bills were down by a point to the New York Giants. There were eight seconds left on the clock. They were, they were lined up at the 30-yard line for what would be a 17, or a, I'm sorry, a 47-yard field goal attempt. The kid who had spent hours and hours, kick after kick, 
preparing for that moment, lined up, you know, a few yards behind and off to the left of the placeholder. The ball was snapped, the kick was up, and then those two words were uttered by Al Michaels over the TV that no Buffalo fan wants to hear, but I'm going to say them, wide right. (laughs) Wide right. He was so close. Not far from Super Bowl glory. The Buffalo Bills were not far from Super Bowl glory, but not in. Not in. The scribe that we just read about in our text this morning had years of preparation to do the work that he was called to do. He had to um, meticulously uh, transcribe the word of God. That's what a scribe did. And so this scribe, his job was to meticulously transcribe God's word. He had years of preparation of apprenticeship getting up to this point. He was only permitted to use animal skins that were completely clean for writing. He had to prepare his ink following a very precise formula. He had to read each word aloud from the manuscript that he was transcribing from. He had to read the word aloud before he could write it down in the manuscript that he was copying. Whenever he came to the name of God, he had to wash not only his writing instruments, but also his body. He had to take a bath. He had to count the numbers of letters and words on each manuscript he wrote. And if three or more pages of the manuscript were found to have an error, he had to rewrite the whole thing. Not surprisingly, the scribe would have been considered an expert in the law of God. He was a biblical scholar. He was perhaps a revered teacher He comes up to Jesus in this passage that we just read this morning. He had overheard the dispute between Jesus and the Sadducees. Eric talked about that last week. And he was impressed by the way in which Jesus, you know, responded to the Sadducees and their attempt to trap him. And so this scribe comes up and asks a question. And there's no sense in this text that the scribe is actually trying to test or trap Jesus, it's just treated as a question. He asked the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the, the rabbis had identified hundreds of commands in the first five books of the Bible. And this scribe, impressed with Jesus, without malice, simply asked the question, which is the greatest? And Jesus responds by bringing together two commands for the first time in history that sum up the entire law. And the scribe was even more impressed. He, he affirmed the truth of what Jesus was saying. And then, and then he went a step further to acknowledge something else the Old Testament teaches, that God is not at all impressed with half-hearted devotion. And when Jesus heard the scribe say this, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far, but not in. There is a real danger in thinking that because you believe God exists or because you were raised in a Christian home or, or because you've gone your, you know, to church your entire life or, or because you've worked really hard to be a good moral person your entire life that you are in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' interaction with the scribe in this passage forces us to ask the question, am I? Am I in? Or am I not far 
but not in. There are three things that we'll see in this text that will help us answer that question. It's a really important question. Three things that we'll see in the text. First of all, the law of love. The law of love. Secondly, the radicalization of love. And then third, the dynamic of love. Law of love, the radicalization of love, and then the dynamic of love. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that by your Spirit, you would teach us from your Word. Lord, help us to hear and answer the question that ought to be on our lips. Lord, give us that confirmation that we're in your kingdom, and not merely, not far. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the law of love, and what Jesus is going to tell us in verses 28 through 30 is that because God is one, he must be loved exclusively, and he must be loved wholeheartedly. So let's take a look, verses 28 through 30, let me read it again. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the rabbinic tradition with which this scribe would have been very familiar, every Jewish person would have been very familiar, that rabbinic tradition had identified in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, 613 different commands. And this scribe simply comes up and asks again. There's no hint of any malice of an attempt to entrap Jesus, he simply asks the question, which is the greatest? And Jesus responds by quoting the Shema. Every Jewish person would have known the Shema. What, what the Apostles' Creed and you know, the Lord's Prayer are to Christianity, the Shema was and is to every Jewish person. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. Moses had given that command to the children of the Exodus generation. So after God had delivered the people out of Egypt, and after the generation that came out of the Exodus had failed to enter the land, God sent them wandering through the desert for 40 years until that generation died off, and the next generation was now at the edge of Canaan, about to enter the promised land, and God, through Moses, said to that generation, now adults, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a powerful statement. God is our God, and God is the only God. And we must love him, therefore, exclusively. But the Shema, again, it goes on to talk about the fact that we must love God wholeheartedly. And Jesus is drawing this from the Old Testament and saying, this applies today. I don't want to try to define the differences between all the words in verse 30. I don't want to try to define, you know, distinctions between heart and understanding and strength because I don't think we're meant to. I think those words are just simply as they overlap and are distinct in various ways are meant to tell us whole person, all of what you are, all your heart. In fact, that word all 
is the word I want to make sure we get from verse 30. Look at it with me again. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Wholehearted devotion to God. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. So the law of love is this. We must love God exclusively and we must love God wholeheartedly. Now here's the thing. That is exactly what we were made for. That is what human beings were created to do, to love God wholeheartedly. It's what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, let me give you an example. If I were a Ferrari dealer, and if I were going to sell you the 2021 Ferrari S490 Spider, which I Googled this morning, and man, it looks pretty cool. It's also going to list for about $700,000 when it comes out sometime this summer. So if I were selling you that car, though, if I were a Ferrari dealer selling you that car, I would probably say to you, man, I bet you can't wait to get this thing out on the open road. And if you were to say to me, you know, actually, I'm going to retrofit it, and I'm going to put a mowing pan on the back, and I'm going to use it to mow my yard. I would fall out of my chair. I would punch you in the face. I would call the police. I would do something because that is not what a Ferrari is designed to do. That's not what it was created for. It was created to, you know, hug the curves, taking hairpin turns through the Italian Alps. It was created to blow by everybody on the Autobahn. I don't know what that would look like here in America, you know, but it was created to do things like that where there are good roads, it was not created to mow grass. Your life is that Ferrari. You were created by God for wholehearted devotion to him. You were created by God to love and serve other people, often in unseen and very unglamorous ways. That is your Alps and your Autobahn. Living for yourself and the things of this world, living for glory or fame or success or money is like hooking a mowing pan up to a Ferrari. It's not what we were created to do. The fact that it doesn't feel that way is not because of a design flaw. It's because of how fallen and broken we are in our sin. That's why the thought of finding our greatest fulfillment in loving God and loving others feels weird. It's because of our sin. What God is calling us to do when he commands us to live wholeheartedly for him is to live according to our design. He's calling us to do what we were made to do. He's calling us to live the life that we were built for. If a Ferrari could talk, it would say, well, it's mowing your grass. I was made for more than this. And some of you are going through life feeling the exact same way. And you are right. You were made for more than this. You were made to love God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's what you were designed to do. And so God's command to love is actually a command born out of his love, out of his desire that you find your greatest joy functioning according to your design, loving and serving him and others. The law of love is a good thing. It's an impossible thing to follow. We're going to circle back around to that at the end. But it is actually what we were created to do. Second, the radicalization of love. Look at verse 31. What Jesus does here, it's really amazing. The second is this, you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now this, we're so used to hearing love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself together that we miss what Jesus is doing here. It's really radical and the scribe heard it. We're going to see it in his response. In the Old Testament, those two laws were never linked together. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Leviticus 19.18, in this case, love your neighbor as yourself. They weren't brought together until Jesus uttered those words. Which is the greatest command, teacher? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. None of the other commandments are as great as these. It was also radical because Jesus, at one level, wasn't saying anything new. If you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, the law of God given to Israel, it actually is the summary or the initial expression, of you, if you will, of what love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself means. Because the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God. And the last six of the Ten Commandments are all about loving your neighbor. So from the moment that God you know, gave his command to his people, remember, it was a command that flowed out of grace. What's the prologue of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God, brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Grace. Law. You shall have no other gods before me. And then it goes on to define what it looks like to love God and what it looks like to love neighbor. When Jesus said to the scribe, I'm going to bring these two commandments in a way that's very radical because you've never heard them together, he was actually saying something that had been said from the very beginning. Love for God, love for neighbor cannot be divided. They must go together. All throughout his ministry, Jesus defined and demonstrated what his love was to look like. He gave the parable in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. When a, when a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? He brought these two together there as well. He asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He took a Samaritan who was hated by Jews and had that Samaritan in the parable demonstrate what sacrificial love, even for one who is rejecting you, looks like. In John chapter 15, Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. And then he went to the cross and he showed them what that looks like. In John 15, he said, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. 
John picks that up in 1 John in his epistle. In 1 John 4.21, he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What that means is that when people criticize Christians for being unloving, we need to listen and ask, are we in fact loving God? Now, we know that the way the world defines love and the way the Bible defines love are two very different things. And so we need to ask, love as God defines it. If that's not something that's reflective in our life, if it's not something that we're demonstrating in the world, sacrificial, serving love, if that's not being seen, then we need to ask ourselves, is there really something real going on between us and God? Christians love God and love others. And our love for others is to be radical. So we've seen the law of love, we've seen the radicalization of love, and now let's turn third to the dynamic of love. The dynamic of love. Take a look at verses 32 through 34. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. That phrase, you are right, doesn't, it sounds so formal. You are right, teacher. More literally, it's translated, that's a beautiful answer. So the scribe is really kind of enthusiastic. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Wow, he's seeing it. These are supposed to be together. Is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he adds there something that Jesus hadn't said. He added something that the Old Testament also taught. That formal religion, half-hearted devotion is not at all acceptable to God. But what did he miss? Because again, Jesus said, you're near, you're not far, but you're not in. What did he miss? He missed what I'm calling the dynamic of love. The dynamic of love. The definition of the word dynamic is this, a force that stimulates change or progress. A force that stimulates change or progress. In Christianity, God's love is the force or personal divine activity that stimulates change in your heart and progress in your love for him and others. It is God's love, his personal Love for you that brings change in your heart and progress in your love for God and others. Now, let me illustrate that by coming back to our Ferrari, our $700,000 Ferrari. If I had sold that to you, I probably would have assumed that you were only going to use high-octane fuel in that puppy. But if I were to say, hey, just want to make sure, you know, like 93 octane when you're at the pump, right? And if you were to say, you know, actually, I intend to run it on kerosene, I would fall out of my chair again. I'd probably punch you in the face again. I'd probably call the police again because that is not the kind of fuel that a Ferrari was meant to run on. I'd say, you're crazy. You're going to ruin the engine. It won't run. Well, in the same way, whenever we try to love God and love others, in our own strength, by our own moral effort, by our attempts to love God in a legalistic way, it's like pouring kerosene into the engine of a Ferrari. 
A Ferrari wasn't created to run on kerosene. It needs high-octane fuel to function according to its design. You weren't created to function according to your design by moral effort. You were created to love God and others running on the high-octane fuel that is the love of God for you. John in 1 John 4.19 says, We love, love God, love others, because God first loved us. Paul in Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is God's love demonstrated for us in the death of his son in our place for our failure to keep the law of love that compels us to love. That is the dynamic of love. That's what brings change. Not only an ability, but a desire to love God, which is actually what's best for us. It's what we were made to do. In our sin, we don't want to do it. We think, that's crazy. I couldn't be happy doing the thing that I was created to do. And God comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life for you so that in my son, Jesus Christ, I will bear the wrath that you deserve for failing to keep my law of love so that by my grace, you can live according to my design for you increasingly now, never perfectly, until that day that Jesus Christ comes and returns and we live life anew in the kingdom of God, loving him and loving others perfectly. That is the life of heaven. The scribe didn't see it. He was so close. So close. What is it that he missed? It has to do with the sacrifice. See, he understood that God is not pleased with whole burnt offerings and sacrifices apart from a life of love, apart from wholehearted devotion, formal religion, the offering of the sacrifices every year that characterized Jewish religion. God's not pleased if we go through the motions doing that, but he was forgetting why the sacrifices were offered in the first place, to make atonement for sin, to be able to satisfy, not fully, not perfectly, not finally, but to make propitiation for the sin of God's people until the final sacrifice came. The sacrifice to which all the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed until the Messiah came to be the suffering servant, to lay down his life for the sheep and usher in the kingdom of God. What the scribe was so close to seeing and yet so far from seeing was that the final sacrifice was standing right in front of him. And so Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but you're not in. There's a question that's left unanswered now, isn't there? You can feel it. If you're in the shoes of the scribe, don't you want to ask, well, then how do I get in? 
That question isn't asked. It's a cliffhanger. We don't know whether that scribe is going to circle back around and put his trust in Christ for his salvation or not. Part of that, perhaps, is so that we can ask that question of ourselves. What must I do to get in? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm so glad you're here. And Jesus has made it plain. Mark records it for us from the very beginning of this gospel. I want to encourage you to take a Bible, take it home, and read Mark's gospel. But very soon, right in chapter 1, Jesus is preaching, repent and believe the good news. Turn from your sin. Confess it. Confess to God that you have actually not only you know, hurt yourself by not living according to God's design, but have actually offended the designer, have sought to rob him of glory by living in ways that are not ultimately even for your own glory, but to your own shame. Confess that sin to God. Repent and believe the good news and that in Jesus Christ your sin is forgiven. And by his spirit living in you, you can grow in your ability to live according to your design, to love God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, fueled by the increasing knowledge of the gospel, of his love for you, unfailing in Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's how you get in. If you've done that, you are a Christian. And so if you're sitting here thinking, man, maybe I'm not a Christian, becoming a Christian is as simple as repenting, turning from your sin, confessing your sin to God, and leaning into Jesus Christ for your salvation, putting your hope and your trust in him alone. It's not moral effort that gets you into the kingdom. It's faith in Christ alone. However, if you are a Christian and this doesn't characterize your life, I want to ask you, are you experiencing in your life the dynamic of love? Are you seeking to live life, loving God, loving neighbor, fueled by God's love for you or in your own effort? One of the things I hope will happen as a result of studying this text is that you will leave here, O Christian, with a greater desire to know the grace of God that is yours in your Savior, Jesus Christ. That today would be a day in which you grow in your knowledge of and experience of the love of Jesus Christ for you. That you would join with Paul in that great prayer in Ephesians 3 to know the height and the depth and the, and, the, and the breadth and the width of the love of Jesus Christ, this love that surpasses knowledge. Oh, Christian, make it your ambition to grow in your knowledge and experience of the love of Jesus for you, that you might live a life according to your design, which is the most pleasing life you could ever know. And if you are not a Christian believer this morning, I do pray that today would be the day that you realize this law of love that Christians are talking about is actually a call into the greatest joy you could ever experience. And it's a joy that is yours only because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, laid down his life so that you could experience it. 
Put your trust in the one who has demonstrated love beyond our greatest imagining. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this passage. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for waking us up from the dead and giving us eyes to see and hearts to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh God, would you help us by your Spirit to live our lives for you, all of us devoted to you in all that we are and in all that we do. Would you empower us to do this by the power of your Spirit and of your grace dwelling in us? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.